0: At this time, I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21. According to one preacher, here we arrive at the very edge of the abyss. I think it was Ligon Duncan who said that. Here we arrive at the very edge of the abyss. And I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. I'm going to go right through to the end of the chapter. I will pause in a couple of places uh, just to make a couple of passing remarks, observations that I trust will help us in our understanding of this text. So again, for a third time, Mark chapter 15, beginning to read in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Cyrene is found in modern day Libya. Evidently, Alexander and Rufus, known to Mark, the author of this book, as a matter of fact, you'll find, I believe it's Rufus mentioned over in Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, Golgotha Aramaic. And so Mark translates the term for his Latin audience, his Roman audience, his Gentile audience. Golgotha, it means place of a skull. The Latin translation of Golgotha is a word we're all familiar with, we perhaps don't realize it, Calvary. And so we had that term Calvary running throughout our songs this morning. It is the Latin term equivalent to Golgotha. And so when we sing of Calvary, we are actually singing of the place of a skull. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. They began marking the hours at six in the morning. So this is 9 a.m. The third hour, 9 a.m., verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, you'll notice, depending on the translation you're using, that I skipped right over verse 28. If you are following along in the English Standard Version, you'll notice number 28 isn't there. It goes from 27 to 29. In other translations, it is there. It's a citation from the book of Isaiah 53, verse 12. If you want to know more about what's going on there, you'll have to come back next Lord's Day because I don't have time to pack it all in this morning. But we will address that next Sunday, Lord willing. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Again, this is Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani. And so he translates it for the benefit of his audience, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses, and Salome. summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. Now, we are going to dive headfirst into this wonderful portion of God's Word. But before we do, I need to make two key observations. Observation number one is this. And it might come as a bit of a surprise to you. Mark actually says very little about the crucifixion of Jesus. Did you notice that? Verse 24, and they crucified him. Verse 25, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. He's not unique. Matthew, Luke, John, they all give scant attention to the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Why is that? Mark chooses intentionally to focus on certain details. As a matter of fact, Ten details surrounding the cross. His choice is deliberate. Why do I say that? Mark, in these ten details, which he chooses to record for us, is actually giving us a theology of the cross. Mark is telling us what we are to believe. Let me put it in stronger terms. Mark is telling us What we must believe concerning what happens as the Lord Jesus hangs upon Calvary's cross. Ten details. Second observation is this. Mark very carefully, roots, fixes these details in the Old Testament scriptures. If you have your bulletin handy, just take it for a moment And on the inside of your bulletin, you'll see that title, Sermon Notes. The title for this sermon, Forsaken. There's our text, Mark 15, 21 to 47. Ten blanks, the ten details that we're going to consider concerning the cross and the significance of the cross, the theology of the cross. Beside each of the nine, the first nine of those ten details, I have included an Old Testament text for you. There are many other Old Testament scriptures I could have included. I just want to convey to you what Mark is conveying to us, namely this. All of these details, what happens at the cross, his theology of the cross is fixed in the Old Testament, teaching us what? That the cross is the plan of God. That the cross happens, the cross takes place in accordance with the sovereign Will of God. Extremely important, extremely significant, because as we saw last week, it is Judas who delivers Jesus over to Council. It is the Council who delivers Jesus over to Pilate. It is Pilate who delivers Jesus over to be crucified. That could leave us with the erroneous impression that what is happening at Calvary's cross is something inflicted upon Jesus by man against his will. We would be sorely mistaken if that were our conclusion. Because in actual fact, God Himself, the Father, spared not His Son, but delivered Him over for us all. And as Peter will preach on Pentecost, he will make it abundantly clear, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We need to be clear on those two things going in. We need to be clear on it. Because there is so much emphasis today placed on the portrayal of the actual crucifixion. I am not minimizing for one moment the actual crucifixion in and of itself, but it is not what catches Mark's attention. It's not even what catches Matthew's or Luke's or John's attention. There are certain things happening around the cross, upon the cross. They are giving us a theology of the cross, what we must believe to be saved. And they are rooting that theology of the cross in the Old Testament scriptures to convey to us in no uncertain terms that this is all happening and transpiring and unfolding according to the sovereign will of God. With those two observations made, we dive in. Ten details surrounding the cross. A theology of the cross. Detail number one is this. A cup rejected. That's the first detail. A cup. Rejected. Look with me at verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What has that got to do with anything? Well, firstly, why do they offer him this cup of wine mixed with myrrh? It's a crude painkiller. In other words, its intent, its purpose is to do what? Impair judgment, impair senses in order to minimize the pain. Jesus refuses it right at the end of verse 23. He did not take it. It is a cup rejected. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is going to the cross willfully, and he is going consciously, and he is going purposefully. That the Lord Jesus refuses to drink this cup because he is drinking from another cup. It is a cup which he identifies earlier this same evening as he agonizes in the garden and he prays to his father, remove this cup from me. What is the cup? It is the cup of God's righteous indignation. It is the cup of God's fury. It is the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus agonizes in the garden as he is struck with this deep inner sense of what it will mean to experience his Father's displeasure upon the cross when our sin is attributed to him. That is the cup from which he drinks. And he wants it made clear he is drinking it consciously. He is drinking it willfully. He is drinking it intentionally. Friend, you must understand this, that when the Lord Jesus refuses to drink this cup, this cup of wine mixed with myrrh, he is declaring the following. I take their pain. That's what he's saying. I take their punishment. I take their judgment. And I do it consciously. And I do it. Because I have come to obey and fulfill the will of my Father. That is detail number one. A cup rejected. Detail number two is this. A garment divided. Verse 24. And they crucified him. And divided. Who are the they? Soldiers. The Roman soldiers. They crucified him. And divided his garments among them. Casting lots for them decide what each should take. And so contrary, contrary to how the crucifixion is portrayed in art, Jesus is naked as he hangs upon Calvary's cross. He is naked. It is the epitome and the full expression of what? Shame. Humiliation. Need a stronger word than that. Degradation is what it is. And his nakedness is designed to drive us back where? To the garden. And it's to remember Adam and Eve. It is to recall their nakedness prior to the fall. And it is to remember that after their sin and rebellion against God, the curse entered in. They knew they were naked and they were filled with shame and guilt. And now here we have the Lord Jesus stripped of his garment. We have the Lord Jesus bearing our shame. We have the Lord Jesus bearing our humiliation and degradation. We have the Lord Jesus being clothed, we can say, with our nakedness, that we might be clothed with his righteousness. I think it's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul makes it clear that Jesus makes himself nothing. He exchanges a crown of stars for a crown of thorns. He exchanges the worship of angels for the ridicule of men. He exchanges the glory of a heavenly temple for the indignity and shame of a wooden cross. Cursed, says Paul, Galatians chapter 3, is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so as that culprit, that individual hangs upon the tree, and this suspension between heaven and earth, what it is declaring is this. That that individual, that person doesn't deserve to walk on the earth. Do you understand, friend? Do you get it? Why he is there. Bearing our shame, bearing our nakedness, bearing our guilt. Making himself nothing. The third detail is this. A charge affixed. Verses 26 and 27. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, verse 27, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now this inscription, we don't know what's going through Pilate's mind, but I'm guessing, and I think it's a sanctified guess, That Pilate is heaping ridicule, perhaps upon the Lord Jesus, but primarily he is heaping ridicule upon the Jews. They have a hate-hate relationship. And so he is making it clear as the Lord Jesus hangs upon the cross, and by nailing this inscription above the head of the Lord Jesus, the King of the Jews, he is mocking them. He is saying to them, in essence, Behold your King, this bloody mass of pulverized flesh. My, you are a special people. Mocking them. And in so doing, mocking Jesus. But Jesus is not mocked because, indeed, again, we see the sovereignty of God. We see that the irony is palpable, isn't it? Because this man is indeed the king of the Jews. Not only is he the king of the Jews, he's the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, he is the only blessed sovereign. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the one whom Isaiah beholds. In Isaiah, as it's recorded in his book, chapter 6, the one who is enthroned in majesty, the train of his robe filling the temple, the one before whom the cherubim hide their faces and declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Yes, this pulverized mass of bleeding flesh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the indignation. On this side, he's got a robber. And on this side, he has another robber. The translation is weak. This past week, we've been struck with the horror of what's transpired in Boston. And and, and this word terrorism and, and terrorist. These men on his right and his left, these are terrorists. Are you beginning to understand it? What you feel right now toward those men... That's what the Romans felt toward these men and Jesus himself, who takes the place of Barabbas. It's even more significant than that. What you feel toward those men and the heinousness of their crimes, friend, that is how God sees us in our sin. Are you beginning to get it? How God sees us? And here we have the wonderful fulfillment, and that's why it's inserted in some translations, the citation from Isaiah 53, verse 12, and the scripture was fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. and There we have the Lord Jesus bearing our shame, bearing our guilt. We have our sin imputed to the Lord Jesus. And we behold the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We behold the one who dwells in unapproachable light, Becoming sin for us. Becoming a curse for us. Bearing our punishment in our stead. He was scourged. Friend, understand this please. He was scourged so that you might be healed. He was condemned so that you might be justified. He was cursed so that you might be blessed. He was naked so that you might be clothed. He bore a crown of thorns that you might wear a crown of glory. He was mocked so that you might be honored. He was forsaken that you might be reconciled. A charge affixed. We come now to the fourth detail. A challenge uttered. Verse 29. Take note of three different groups of people. Verse 29. And those who passed by. There's group number one. The onlookers, the crowd. They derided him. Wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Group number 2, verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Group number 3, right at the end of verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so at the start of his crucifixion, both of those terrorists mock him. Over the course of his crucifixion, one of them, I dare say, is born again. And his tune is changed by the time we come to the end, is it not? Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. But here we have these three groups mocking The Lord Jesus. You put together with Mark. Matthew's account. Luke's account. And John's account. And when we put this mocking all together. And and, and what they express. And what they say. And we peel away the layers. And we get right down to the heart of it. It is simply this. They are questioning the father's delight in the son. You claim to be the son of God. Where is your father? Let's see if your father delights in In you. And here is the thrust, the main intent of this mocking, and how it must have pierced the heart of the Lord Jesus. Think it through. If someone questions an acquaintance, an acquaintance of mine, if someone questions my acquaintance's love for me, water off a duck's back, I couldn't care less. But if someone questions a friend, someone here, a fellow believer, friend's love for me or concern for me, I begin to feel it a bit, don't I? Now, keep building. If someone questions a family member, one of my sisters, uh, her love for me, I really feel it. If someone questions or casts doubt upon my wife's love for me, ooh, they have pierced deep. And if my wife were to remain silent while that individual questioned and casted doubt upon her love for me, how that would pierce my heart. That's what's happening here. Now, friend, what you really need to do to get the sense here is you need to lean in. We have these three groups. We have the passerby number one. We have the, the council members, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, that, the religious, Jewish religious authorities, and you have the robbers, the terrorists themselves. Lean in, friend, and listen closely, because you know what you hear in all of them? It is the voice of Satan. That's what you hear. You go with me all the way back to Mark chapter 1 in the outset of Christ's ministry. That having been baptized in the Jordan, he emerges from the water the heavens open, the dove descends, and the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Having been anointed by the Spirit, the Spirit immediately drives, compels the Lord Jesus to go out into the desert, the wilderness. Why? He has a rendezvous with the devil to be tested. He is the last Adam. Just as the first Adam was tested in the garden and failed, now the last Adam will be tested by the devil in the wilderness and will triumph. You look carefully at the three temptations which Satan brought to the Lord Jesus while they were in the wilderness, and you will discover that at the heart of them all, Satan is trying. He is attempting to do what? He is attempting to cast doubt. In the mind of the Lord Jesus concerning his father's delight for him, love for him, concern for him. That is the intent. That temptation continues undoubtedly throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and it culminates at Calvary's cross in the mocking. You who claim to be the son of God, where is your father? That is what the Lord Jesus is hearing as he hangs upon Calvary's cross. And friend, this is what we must enter into because it is essential for our justification. We behold the Lord Jesus entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He will not be moved. He will not be shaken. And at Calvary's cross, it begins from the in the manger, It culminates at Calvary's cross. We have the Lord Jesus submitting himself perfectly and fully and completely to the will of the Father. What is he doing? Satisfying and fulfilling all righteousness for us. He obeys him to the end. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus, it is that perfect obedience. It is that blameless, spotless righteousness, that full and free submission to the Father, which the Father attributes to us, reckons to us, whereby we stand justified in his sight. It is a challenge uttered. Fifth detail is this. A sky darkened. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, again, that's noon. Midday. And so Mark records. He's very intentional. He records the time because he wants us to know. He wants his readers to understand that this darkness is supernatural. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. When we read of this darkness again, we should immediately go all the way back to the Old Testament. And we should return uh, to the days of the, of, of the Exodus. And just prior to that monumental event, when God brought those ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, and we need to recall the tenth plague, yes, it was the death of the firstborn. A- a- and the Jews remembered and celebrated and commemorated that plague through the Passover. But what was the plague that immediately preceded the tenth? The ninth plague, it was darkness. As a matter of fact, you go back, Moses tells us it was a darkness that could be felt. This isn't some mere eclipse of the sun, some natural eclipse that happens. No, This is a supernatural darkness. God himself brings darkness, blankets, envelops the entire scene in utter darkness as a testimony, as a declaration of what? This is an hour of judgment. And so there are two eclipses. We can use that word eclipse. Firstly, there is an external eclipse, not a literal eclipse, but an eclipsing of the sun. The sun is hidden by this supernatural darkness. But that external darkness points to a far more significant darkness. The external points to the internal. And the eclipse of the sun externally points to the eclipse of the Father's countenance internally. And so we have the Lord Jesus as He is suspended between heaven and earth upon the cross. And as He undergoes that ridicule and that mocking, and at the essence of that mocking, He hears them casting doubt upon His relationship with the Father, the Father's delight in Him. He experiences for these three hours this utter darkness externally and internally when the light of the Father's countenance is cut off. There's a famous book years ago called The Endurance. Written, pen by Ernest Shackleton. A British explorer, 1914, decided to sail his boat, the Endurance, to Antarctica. And he was going to hit land, and then he was going to walk across land to the South Pole. Best laid plans. He got stuck in the ice. And for months, he languished upon the ice. And when asked, he was saved ultimately, and when asked what was the most trying the most taxing, the most testing thing of that experience. Those those months stuck in the ice. He said it was the darkness. You see, May, June, July, uh, the sun never appears above the horizon. Complete darkness for three months. He said that darkness isolated us. That darkness maddened us. That darkness overwhelmed us. And here we have the Lord Jesus in darkness, speaking of isolation, speaking ultimately of destruction, pointing finally to the judgment of God, external darkness and eclipse of the sun, testifying to an internal darkness and eclipse of the Father's countenance. It brings us to the sixth detail and ties in, dovetails nicely and significantly with the sixth A cry, unanswered. And so at the culmination of this three hours of darkness, the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, interestingly, the precise time when the Jews offered the evening sacrifice. No coincidence there. Mark is making it clear that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment, the culmination of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. It is at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, that Jesus cries with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi lena sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand, firstly, friend, that the Lord Jesus does not cry out because of what men do to him. He does not cry out, my head, my head. He does not cry out, my feet, my feet. He does not cry out, my back, my back. He does not cry out, call out because of what men do to him. Jesus cries out because of what His Father is doing to Him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a pivotal statement. It is a pivotal declaration. We need to be clear here on precisely what the Lord Jesus is saying. This is a little theological. We're going to probe the depths here, but we must to understand precisely what is happening. This forsakenness. Is not the termination of the union between the Father and the Son. We're Trinitarian. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe and we affirm that they are three distinct persons who are one substance, one essence, one being in eternity. Co-equal, co-essential, we affirm it. At Calvary's cross, there is no termination of that union. Jesus made it clear throughout his earthly ministry, my Father and I, we are we are one. One indissoluble being, inseparable essence. This forsakenness is not the termination of the union between the two natures. Jesus is, we affirm it, fully God, fully man in one person. Divine nature, human nature in one person. At Calvary's cross, the divine nature did not abandon the human nature. Jesus remained fully God, fully man, as he hung upon Calvary's cross. As Paul makes clear, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified, wait for it, the Lord of glory. It's God himself upon Calvary's cross. This forsakenness is not the termination of the Father's love. For the Son. At times I've heard people think, reason this way. Well, at the cross, the Father stops loving the Son. Oh, friend, the Father never stops loving the Son. The reality of the Father's love for the Son burns as intensely upon Calvary's cross as it has ever and ever will burn. The forsakenness is not the termination of the Father's love for the Son. Jesus himself declared, listen to this, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Fourthly, this forsakenness is not the termination of Jesus' personal holiness. Careful here, steady on, tread lightly. Jesus became sin for us. By that, Scripture does not mean, and we do not mean, that he bore the stain of our sin. Jesus became sin for us, meaning he bore the guilt and the penalty of our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. It was not infused to him. Jesus in his person was as holy as he's ever been, will ever be, as he hung upon Calvary's cross. Friend, if we think he bore the stain of our sin, we've actually undone the efficacy of his sacrifice. He was a perfect, spotless lamb of God to whom God attributes our sin. He deals with him as if he were a sinner. Not that he really became a sinner or sinful. Our sin is imputed to him, reckoned to him, attributed to him. And so Peter makes it clear. He suffered once for sins. The righteous. And he was righteous as he hung upon Calvary's cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so what do we mean when we say the Father forsook the Son? How are we to understand this this cry? From the lips of the Lord Jesus, from Calvary's cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friend, it, it, it resides in a mystery. It resides in the mystery of the Trinity. We affirm God is love, don't we? We affirm it as, as a precious truth. We affirm it as essential truth. Guess what? God isn't love if he isn't triune. What do I mean by that? There is no love where there is no object to love. Love is an action verb. Love is something we do. In order to be love, we must have something to love. God is love eternally in His essential self, meaning there must be an object to love. The object is Himself. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One being, one essence, three distinct persons. The Father loving and delighting in the Son and the Spirit. The Son loving and delighting in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loving and delighting in the Father and the Son. God is love, meaning God dwells in eternity. This relationship in Himself between Father, Son and Spirit, a relationship marked and characterized by mutual delight and mutual love. At Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus loses what? What is veiled to him? It is not the reality, but it is the sense of that love. John Flavel, he states it wonderfully. The Father keeps back the irradiations of heavenly light and comfort. What had been the Son's eternal delight and joy to bask in the radiance of the Father's love, the sense of it is removed as he hangs upon Calvary's cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a cry of doubt. He's not dazed and confused. This is not a cry of despair. He knows precisely what the outcome of this will be. This is not a cry of surprise. Boy, I didn't see this coming. What's going on? No well, friend, as one preacher has put it, this is the cry of the damned. That's what we have here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of the damned. As William Hendrickson states, hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our place. Hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our place. And as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is nothing but... Silence. I dare say, if there had ever been a time when the Father wanted to speak, it was then. At the baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Sealed his entire ministry. Poured out his delight. Those nights the Lord Jesus spends in prayer, what's he doing? He's fellowshipping with the Father. His soul's delight. That mutual love, that mutual delight. And now as his son, the object of his eternal love, is suspended upon the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is nothing but silence. He refuses to answer. Friend, the father refuses to answer the son because the son has taken my place. Do you get it? If you aren't a believer, repent of your sin. And turn to the Lord Jesus. Friend, you claim to be a Christian. You're toying with sin. Wake up. Spending countless hours watching TV, playing video games, living a surreal life. Wake up. Understand who the Lord Jesus is. Understand what transpires at Calvary's cross. Friend, wake up. And understand the magnitude of what caused the heavenly host to gasp. As they beheld that scene and saw it unfold before them. The Father forsake the Son. The Father refusing to answer the Son. Because the Son has taken my place. He cries out again. Verse 37. He uttered a loud cry. We know what that cry is. The other gospels, John in particular, records us for it. Do you remember three words? It is finished. I've been through hell. It is finished. What I came to do, it is finished. It is accomplished. And then what happens? He breathed his last friend. That is a supernatural death. Crucifixion, gory scene, bloody scene, horrific scene. And as those men were, were crucified, how did they normally die? It usually took a couple of days, depending on their constitution, their physical well-being. It usually took a couple of days. Eventually, because of the blood loss, they would slip into a coma. And then in a coma... Uh, they would simply slump and their chest cavity would contract and they would slowly suffocate. That is not how the Lord Jesus dies. He is conscious the entire time. He is awake the entire time. He knows precisely what is happening moment by moment, second by second. And I cannot understand this and do not ask me to try to explain it. All I know is this, that his death is supernatural. And it is a wonderful confirmation of what he declared in John 10, 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. That is a cry unanswered. Seventh detail is this, a veil destroyed. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple. Please don't think of a curtain in your house. Don't even think of a blanket or a sheet or a towel. This thing is enormous. This thing is thick. If this curtain were to lay on, be, be set on top of you, you wouldn't be able to wiggle your way out. That's the weight of it. This thing is a mammoth. This thing is huge. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, not from bottom to top. But from top to bottom, there are actually two veils, two curtains in the temple, what used to be the tabernacle. There is the external or outside veil, visible to all, that when you entered into the courtyard and you came up against the altar where the sacrifices were offered to God and the labor where the priests washed, you would then see this veil marking the entrance into the temple. And you go through that veil and the priests were allowed to go through that first veil because there you found the altar of incense and they would burn incense on that altar and they had to trim the lights of the lampstand and they had to change the bread on the table of showbread. But there they would see another veil. And this veil, this curtain, was the separation, the line of delineation between the most holy place and the holy place. And only the high priest had the privilege of entering through that veil once a year, day of atonement, and he dare not go through without blood. And he would take that blood, the blood of the goat, and he would enter through that veil, knees trembling and knocking undoubtedly. And he would sprinkle that blood upon the altar, upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon that mercy seat there in the most holy place to do what? To make atonement for sin. Friends, Jesus is the veil. His body is torn. The veil is torn. Jesus is the high priest. He's the one who enters in. It is his blood offered and poured out at Calvary's cross. He is the one who makes atonement. To atone is simply this. Praise God. Jesus has satisfied God's justice. And in satisfying God's justice, he has appeased his wrath. And in appeasing his wrath, he has secured his mercy. And now we celebrate this all-glorious truth. There is... But one God, and there is man, and one man, Christ Jesus, between God and man, between the righteous God and the rebellious sinner, the bridge, the one mediator, Jesus Christ. The veil torn, opening the way into God's presence. The eighth detail is this, a truth proclaimed. Now we're into verse 39. And when the centurion, so a Roman soldier, stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Why does Mark include this detail? I think it's very significant where he includes it. It is following what he says in verse 38, the curtain of the temple torn in two, meaning what? That the way is now open, Jew and Gentile, to God's presence through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. That is what is symbolized in the tearing, the destruction of this curtain. Now he illustrates it by demonstrating what? A Roman, a Gentile, the audience to whom he is writing. What is this Roman's conclusion, this centurion's conclusion? As he beholds the death of the Lord Jesus, he says, he declares, he makes it clear, truly this man was the Son of God. He's a soldier. Think it through, folks. A centurion. How many people has this man seen die? Take a guess. How many people has this man killed? How many crucifixions has he watched over and participated in? What is it concerning the death of Jesus, a hardened soldier, who has seen countless people die, who has inflicted unspeakable pain upon countless people, who has overseen innumerable crucifixions. What is it in particular specifically about this death, this instance, which leads him to conclude truly this man was the Son of God? Listen carefully to these words. In the midst of the lacerated wound in the midst of the excretion of bodily fluids, in the midst of the nauseating smell, and in the midst of the disfigured face, the centurion sees Jesus die unjustly, quietly, patiently, intentionally, voluntarily, tenderly, and gloriously. And his conclusion is this, truly this man was the Son of God. That must be our conclusion as we come face to face with the cross and this man suspended upon it and dying in the stead of sinners. Hear the words of the good doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. When we look at the cross, we'll hear this carefully. God is not asking us to pity Jesus. I need to repeat that because far too many of us fall into this trap. Far too many of our passion plays and movies, that's exactly what they're designed to do. They're designed to make us pity Jesus. God is not inviting us to pity Jesus. When we look at the cross, God is not asking us to pity Jesus. Jesus is not the one who needs the pity Sinners who continue under the just judgment of God are the ones who need the pity. If Jesus has borne hell, then what awaits all those who reject him? If Jesus has borne the darkness, the isolation, the, 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 the destruction, the disintegration, if he has borne the darkness, then what awaits all those who reject him? If he has borne the Father's displeasure, that separation of the sense of his Father's love, if he was, has been cut off as he hangs upon Calvary's cross, what awaits all those who reject him? As we behold the cross, the Father is not saying, Well, pity Jesus, have a good cry, and go away feeling pretty good about yourself. That is not the purpose of the cross. We are to leave the cross crying, Truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And truly this man demands of me, requires of me utter repentance and belief and obedience in him. That is the call of the cross. That is the cry of the cross. A truth proclaimed. We come to the ninth detail. A body buried. It's rather lengthy. It's intentional. It begins in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, that's where his ministry began, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Why this mention of women? And they reappear at the end of the chapter, and they will reappear in chapter 16. That's a question to wait for next Sunday. Verse 42. And when evening had come, the end of Friday, Saturday, the Sabbath is dawning in the evening. Since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, notice a couple of things about him, a respected member of the council who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God. There you see the sovereignty of Almighty God. You see, in that day when a man was crucified, um, Roman policy, they didn't take those bodies down from the crosses. They left them there. And they allowed those bodies to decompose and rot. Why? They're trying to make an impression upon the Jews, right? They would leave these bodies lining the highways and the byways, very visible. As a warning to the Jews, to all who rebel, to all who challenge the might of Rome. That was their practice. They would leave these bodies on the crosses until they decompose. And then some poor fellow had the responsibility of taking them down and throwing them all into a pit. That is what would have happened to the body of Jesus, but for the sovereignty of God. God has a man. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. He is a member of the council. He is one of the Jewish religious authorities, meaning what? He has access to Pilate, meaning what? He can gain an audience with Pilate, meaning what? He can make a request. Can I have the body? And Pilate grants it. Here we see this wonderful truth that the Father does not allow his Son, his Holy One, to undergo decay. And Joseph of Arimathea takes this body and inters it, entombs it. But notice, there's a second detail concerning Joseph in verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why did that require courage? What's Pilate going to think of him? What does this troublemaker want? the body of Jesus. Uh, What are the crowds going to think of him? They had had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. What is the council, his fellow council members, going to think of him? I dare say this day in the life of Joseph of Arimathea marked his excommunication. His life was never the same after this day. Undoubtedly, this man lost everything, but he counted it worthy to lose all. Why? Because he was looking for the kingdom of God. Pilate grants the request, having confirmed it with the centurion. Lots of eyewitnesses, lots of firsthand accounts and testimony concerning the death of the Lord Jesus. We have the council, we have Joseph, we have these women, we have Pilate, we have the centurion. Why? Because Mark in his day when he penned is already dealing and confronting a heresy which will become known as what? Docetism, which affirms what? That Jesus didn't really die. That he, he swooned or he passed out or, or Simon the Cyrene or Judas or someone else took him pla- his place, but he didn't really die. Mark wants to make it perfectly clear that Jesus is dead. His eyes have glazed and hardened. His body has stiffened. His skin is beginning to discolor. Jesus is dead, and his body is placed in the tomb. Mark is setting the stage. He is preparing for what is coming on the Sunday, the resurrection, because he wants to make this clear. It is pivotal and essential to the Christian's hope that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose bodily. Because, friend, God has not only, Christian, God has not only redeemed your soul. He has redeemed your body. To be human is to be body and soul. And, yes, we're born again now. And, yes, praise God, we're being renewed in our inner man, our inner being right now, while our outer man is decaying. But our hope is what? Of a glorious resurrection, of which the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the first fruits. A body buried. And now the tenth and final detail. And I know what you're thinking. We've come to the end of the chapter. There aren't any verses left. Go all the way back to where we began. Tenth detail. A cross carried. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. I've seen this displayed erroneously more times than I care to remember, that there's Jesus struggling under the weight of the cross, and Simon feels pity for him and comes over and picks up the cross and helps him. That is not what happens. Simon's sitting there, standing there as a spectator. It's all transpiring before him. The soldiers pick out Simon. He objects. To me, it reads, they probably hold a sword to his neck. You will help him with that cross. It is a very strong verb in the Greek. They compelled him. He didn't want to do it. They forced him to pick up that cross. Simon was compelled by force to pick up the cross. Here's what I want to proclaim and make perfectly clear, friend, before you this morning. That as I read this text and I see the suffering Savior on Calvary's cross, I am not compelled by force. I am compelled by force. By love. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is cut off from the love of God so that I might enjoy the love of God. Do we esteem this love so highly that we are willing to lose everything? For him. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. Our Father, we make that our prayer this day before you. And we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for what happened there. We shudder to think of our sin which nailed him there. And our hearts are overwhelmed with love and awe as we behold your love for us which nailed him there. And as we behold the suffering Savior, And as we behold him now, wondrously glorified at your right hand, we do indeed give him, your son, the Lord Jesus, all the glory. And we offer it in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.